um, uh, uh, a great sort of series to start off a young, still very small church plant because uh, we all have different things that maybe because of our ages or our backgrounds or our own theological preferences or experiences, we, we would love to see in a church. We might make a list of ten, the top 10 things, or the top five things, or the non-negotiables that we would want a church to be like, or what we want to experience when we come and visit it, uh, 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 and, and put that down in the list and expect churches to be like that. Well, we're starting our church plan by studying Jesus' list of things that he demands to be in a church. So Jesus has, as we've seen in the last two weeks, he has come to to John and and John has seen the vision of the Lord Jesus exalted and glorious and shining like a warrior angel to deliver this message of all the vision that's going to come forward. And before he does, he he, he inspires John and and he tells John the letters to write down that he will then send to the churches telling each of those seven churches in in Asia at the time what Jesus wants them to do, what he wants them to fix, what he thinks they're doing well. And so it's such a such a uh, great time to be able to sort of come to this as every church and every generation is able to come to these letters and then assess ourselves and say, all right, well, Jesus said this to the Ephesians, where am I lacking that? Jesus said this to the to, to the church in Smyrna, where am I lacking that? And so we can assess ourselves and, and we have the special uh, privilege of doing this as a church plant very early on that we will know what icebergs to miss before we get to them, before we hit them. And so we will be reading from Revelation chapter 2. And verse 1, hear now the word of the Lord. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven gold lampstands, I know your works, I know your toil, and I know your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the seven churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. May God bless the reading of his own word in our midst this evening. So we come to this letter that Jesus has written to the Ephesian church. Bless you, brother James. Thanks, mate. And we understand that uh, 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 Jesus identifies many things here. He's going to identify himself and then the positives about the church, then the negatives about the church, what they need to do in order to uh, avoid the threats that he then gives them. So we're going to see, first of all, that Jesus identifies himself. Look at verse 1. He says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So there is a very uh, uh, clear intentionality about what Jesus does. In each of the letters, as he introduces himself, he takes a portion of the vision that John saw and applies that line to himself, specifically to that church. Now, it's not random. It's very intentional which one he uses, which identifying marker he uses to identify himself as he introduces himself to the church. 
So today, the way that he is identifying himself to the Ephesian church, taking a section of chapter 1, in that vision that we saw from verse 12 through 17, and he's saying, I am the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. This is to say that he is, uh, uh, he, uh, uh, he is the, the one who holds the pastors of the churches in his hand. We, we got told last week in verse 20 that the, the, the stars in Jesus' right hand are the corresponding pastors for each church. And that shows us that Jesus takes a very strong view of the, the pastoral office in the church. He, he holds that position firmly. He holds those men to account. Uh, one of the first things to go wrong in a long line of dominoes that takes a church into horrible different places is that the leadership goes wrong. Either the right people are in leadership, but they do the wrong things, or the wrong people and wrong gender are put into the leadership and the dominoes start falling. So Jesus takes very seriously the leadership of the church and he holds them intentionally in his right hand. But we also see that he stands, uh, uh, sorry, that he walks among the seven golden lampstands. We saw last week that the lampstands are symbolic of the churches that he's writing to. So that in a spiritual sense, every true church on earth, not everything that calls itself a church, is in fact a church. Sometimes they're a cult. Sometimes they're just a bunch of people meeting in a room and calling themselves a church, but there's no real truth there. Yet where there is any genuine spiritual church, it has a a representation in the very presence of Jesus. And like a priest in the Old Testament temple, he walks through the lampstands and does what a priest is supposed to do. He makes sure they're burning. He makes sure they have enough oil. He makes sure the wick has not gone gone out. He makes sure that the the dust is not covering all of the lampstands. He does his job to maintain the burning of the lampstands. And that is what Jesus himself is doing in the churches. So that from here on in, as we see him writing to this church, he's doing so as the one who takes responsibility for the eldership, the pastors, and takes responsibility for the health and the shining of this church in Ephesus. So that's first. Jesus identifies himself. And then secondly, we can identify the church. So look at the very first part of verse 1. It says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. The church in Ephesus, like all of the seven churches that we're going to look at, are quite close together. They sort of form a mail route that the mailman would travel along and and they're ordered in in that order so that some guy is going to carry the book of Revelation from John and he's going to go and he's going to give a copy to Ephesus and then give a copy to each of the one, the churches that he he lists. And the first one near the shore is going to be Ephesus. That's going to be the first one that he lands at. And it was a, it was a main, it was one of the capital cities of the Roman Empire. Uh, They had a capital city of the west, which was Rome, and they had a capital city of the east, which was Ephesus. It had had enormous uh, cultural, political, uh, societal influence in the world. It actually had a lot of um, uh, 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 spiritual influence as well because it had one of the great, uh, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world in the temple of Artemis. It was this enormous mountaintop temple that was made up of 127 meter and a half wide columns. Thousands of people worked in there and did all sorts of dodgy stuff and worshipped to Artemis or Diana, depending how they named them. Uh, and, and so it was an extremely influential city. But we see main a lot of the ministry, and you can actually go there if you want, because I'm going to spend a little bit of time going through it. In Acts chapter 19 and 20, we see the planting and the explosion of the church in Ephesus. So it, uh, in Acts chapter 19 and 20, we see that it became a thriving megachurch. 
in this city, this very uh, cultural center, a lot of people going in and out of the city, a lot of people traveling through, a lot of people stopping over, a lot of different cultures coming there to live. Uh, Paul had actually spent two and a well, two and two years and three months in Ephesus, which is a very long time compared to where he spent most of his time elsewhere. He was usually on the move a lot. After he left, he left Timothy there to sort out some heresies and get rid of the female pastors. After him, church history tells us that John the Apostle was actually there for a long period of time. So these guys have an enormous spiritual pedigree. Their former pastors are Timothy, the disciple of Paul. Their planting pastor was the Apostle Paul himself. And then the last guy that they had was John the Apostle, the guy who's writing this and who will then come to them later in the future as well. So they have a, an enormous spiritual pedigree, a pretty impressive uh, list of, of ex-pastors. <clears throat> we see that they are written the letter of Ephesians in the Bible. They are written the letters of First and Second Timothy because that is going to Timothy while he's in Ephesus. We, and, and also the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John uh, are written there, and also this letter in Revelation. So they received six personally and specifically addressed uh, uh, epistles in the New Testament. That's a whopping number. They got a lot of attention um, because of their extreme influence for Christianity in the early centuries. Now, if you're in Acts chapter 19 and 20, you can sort of just skim through it, and as, as you go, you'll realize that, that Paul got there and his, one of his main missionary tasks was he would get to a place and go to the Jewish synagogue, like their Jewish church. He would go in and he would start proving to the Jews that the Messiah that is coming has already come and his name was Jesus and he died for us and rose for us. That was his, that was his tactic. He would go to the Jewish places and argue that. And he did that for about three months until they kicked him out because they hated what he was saying. And after three months of doing that, he then went into the Gentile center of town and rented what is called the Hall of Tyrannus. We don't know who Tyrannus is. It's just named after him. The Hall of Tyrannus, probably not dissimilar to this, a, a big community hall, if you want, right in the center of town, where uh, maybe the most similar thing we have today would be things like um, uh, stand-up comedy, uh, open mic nights, and uh, TED Talks, and things like that. When everybody would come together and talk and rent it, and it was a public center, and everyone knew to go there to have a good time and to hear teaching and, and all that kind of thing. To see shows, you know, they probably would have had their Christmas show there, and the kids would have done their little nativity scene, probably in Ephesus. That's a joke. They didn't celebrate Easter, uh, Christmas yet then. Uh, anyway, uh, so, so there they were in Ephesus. And so Paul did this for five hours a day, for two straight years, six days a week. Five hours a day between 11 a.m. and 4 p.m. That was sort of like the break time in Ephesus, in the, in the middle of the day for the Greeks. It was when they would stop labor in the middle of the day and they'd go back to work at 4 p.m. And so Paul was working as a tent maker through the night and in the morning, and then he would throw his stitching and his leather down, go into the Hall of Tyrannus, rent it for five hours, preach and teach for five hours straight with the other missionary, the, the Christians who were converted, and then hop on down and go back to work. This guy was a missionary, zealous powerhouse. But while he was there, we're told, in verse 10 of Acts chapter 19, it says, This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia, that is a, a province, not in what we would call Asia today, but a province of the Roman Empire, which Ephesus is a, the capital of, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. They are now able to say, because of one missionary and his little local church, this little band of believers, we're not told how many are there with him, but he definitely would have had some help. We are told that upon tens upon tens of thousands of people, 
in an entire province, probably the size of southeast Queensland, that would take hours to drive across. Every bus stop you stopped in, you say, have you heard what Paul's preaching down in the hall of Tyrannus? And everybody is familiar with the message, whether they've gone themselves or not. This was an enormous influence. So that not literally, but at least figure at least they can say, they can round up and say that all of the residents of Asia had heard the word of the Lord. That is through open air preaching, through lectures that Paul would have been giving, through sermons, through Q&As, through debates, we're told that he had debates as well, through Bible studies, through classes, whatever they were doing, they were doing it for 30 hours a week for two straight years. And one of the effects that it has, if you're in Acts chapter 19, in verse 18 and 19, you see that it uprooted occultism uprooted this, this satanic, dark magic spirituality of the town. So in verse 18, it reads, also many who were now believers came. So this is, this is actually still in church. Imagine this, you're two years into a church plant. You've got a thriving amount of souls coming in, getting saved, forming a church, becoming elders. And then a large amount of them came confessing and divulging all of their practices. And a number of them who had practiced the magic arts, brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. So you're two years into this church plant and Pastor Paul realizes that there's a bit of an epidemic going on under the cover and everybody's still doing their black magic, their wooji boards, worshiping Satan and going to the, the occult club down the street. And so all the Christians start confessing and like, oh yeah, I wasn't sure whether this was right. My conscience was kicking in every now and then. I saw he got talked to about it. I thought I'd confess it. Everybody came forward and actually created a, a large pile of books that they would then burn. And we're told that um, uh, the amount that they counted the value of all the books that were given in and they found it, to, found it come to 50,000 pieces of silver. This is like, I, I, I can't remember the figure in, in modern day language, but over $100,000 worth of books were thrown in, burned. You can go to Ephesus and they'll still show you a huge well, massive hole in the ground where they dig up and still find old, burned, uh, uh, ancient dark magic books. So that's what Paul's preaching did. Eventually, now, if you've ever been to maybe a third world country or this is the Gold Coast, this is one of the hotbeds of Australia for spirituality and for occultism and stuff like that, new ageism. There is no doubt that, that as you get to know those sorts of people, it is deeply rooted. This kind of lies and occultism and spirituality has a way of weaving down through the generations and just owning somebody's soul. And Paul's preaching was so powerful, the church's ministry, that it did eventually uproot the occultism. But not only that, it also uprooted the religious, cultural temperament of the entire city. So in Acts chapter 19, so we're, we're still many, many years before this book is, this letter is being written in the book of Revelation. We're back when Paul was first planning the Ephesian church. And in that church, there was so many converts that the guys who were making the little idols for people to bow down to, so imagine your little Buddha shops and your little uh, touristy trinket places that make all the little shrine stuff and little idols that people can bow down and worship. The guys who were making them were going out of business. So it says in verse 23, about that time there arose no little disturbance according to the way because a riot blew up. These guys were trying to start a riot because they were losing all of their money. One of them was speaking to the crowd as the riot had, had come up and he said, and you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Is that not just the most obvious thing in the world, that if you make the thing, it's not your creator? It shouldn't be that insulting, but that, that's what he's taken a large offense to. This guy's telling us that the thing I'm making with plastic and metal isn't my creator. 
yeah, that's true. But, but notice the influence, the impact that Paul and his Ephesian Christians has had. They're saying in all of Asia, imagine somebody saying on all of the Gold Coast, in all of the Eastern Seaboard, Sunshine Coast down to Byron, no one is buying any more dream catchers. No one is buying any more little Buddhas to hang on to their, their, their little rearview mirror. They're, they're just saying that the entire socio-political tables have been overturned because of the preaching. So he starts complaining in verse 20, uh, uh, 27. He says, and there is a danger, not only that this trade of ours may, uh, may come into disrepute, that is, they're all going broke. This would be like the casinos and the strip clubs all, all complaining to the city mayor because they don't have any more income because the Christians just keep on converting everybody and planting churches. Let's pray for that. A whole bunch, a strip of churches down on Cavill Avenue. That's my prayer. But also, he says, also imagine... The temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence. She whom all Asia and all the world worship. Do you recognize that she, he, he, this man and his blacksmith friends and everybody who's, who's afraid of the change in the economy are getting afraid for their God? They're afraid because Asia is supposed to worship Artemis and we've got the temple and people buy our idols. But now Jesus is coming in through the preaching of Paul in the hall of Tyrannus every single day and our money is going into the Christian church and our God is going to be deposed from her magnificence and no one's going to worship her anymore. No one's going to think very highly of her anymore. Well, it's with absolutely no apology that we can speak back through time to this guy and say that she is deposed. She is utterly deposed. Your whole, your whole idol temple is in fact now just a cute little tourist attraction in tatters that people, Christians very often, who go to visit the places of the church, make a little stop off and look at the temple of Artemis because they've got a free afternoon. But Jesus is on the throne and Jesus has risen from the dead, meaning all false gods should feel threatened. So here is Paul preaching in such a way that the whole, this large crowd actually get into an uproar and they start chanting for two hours straight, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They just chant. The whole city almost uh, got into a large uproar and the mayor basically, the proconsul sent them home because they were all going to get start getting fined and start getting in trouble for this kind of riotous action. Now I want you to, we're going to come back to the letter in the book of Revelation. Having the context of your mind that this is the church that Jesus is writing to. A church that had an explosive, influential beginning where everybody had heard about this small uh, gathering. Uh, it, was, it was influential, disproportionate to its size. Everybody in Asia had heard about Jesus because of the Ephesian church's witness. And so at this point, Jesus identifies the church's strong points. Look at verse 2. Jesus says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. Now, first of all, what we're going to see is, well, if you break them all up individually, which I don't have time for, but if we broke it up all up individually, you have nine positives, one negative, and then a final positive, and each of them have a few overlaps uh, into precisely their meaning. Uh, but what we're going to do is we're going to take the first three, the, uh, the second two, and a bunch, a few of them together in sort of their themes. But Jesus gives nine positives, one negative, and then another positive to this church. First of all, we see he says that he knows their works toil and their endurance. This is a church that Jesus is referring to their works. He means their good deeds, their acts of obedience. They were, they were a very obedient church. Their toil 
refers to the effort with which they were doing those good works. It wasn't a convenient city to be doing good works. It was not a convenient city to feed the poor and to look after the widow and to meet for church and to believe what they believed and to do the good works they were doing. They, had, they, had, they were toiling. In fact, with, along with that, they had what John writes down, patient endurance. That is, when things happened to them, whether it was persecution or just hardship that comes up in life, they didn't mope around and complain, but they got into gear and they worked hard for the sake of what Christ had commanded them. They had, remember, a very good example. Their first pastor was Paul. He was a guy who had been frequently beaten. He was basically blind because of how many times he'd he'd received smashes in the face. His legs were all bowed because of the amount of times rods had broken his bones. He walked with a weird... A weird hump in his back because his ribs and his spine was all cracked. And he was a pretty ugly guy, we're told in church history, that had a monobrow. So all of this, nothing good is going for him. And yet he walks into town and he is the hardest working guy with a full-time job on the side, also full-time pastoring a church plant that is able to reach the entire country. They had a very good example in hard work and endurance. And so Jesus says to them, I know your works. It is a sin for us to want other Christians to notice all of our works. That is mostly because we want glory from them. We want present day and immediate uh, uh, rewards for what we're doing. It is a sin to do that. Jesus warns that about that frequently, and so do uh, the example and the writings of the apostles. However, it is not a bad thing to want Jesus to see your works. In fact, this is precisely why we should not desire that other people see our works, Though when you're doing good works well enough, everybody does eventually notice. But our ultimate desire should be that Jesus himself notices. Because in that, there is no aim for self-glorifying, and uh, because we are simply seeking to please Christ. To know that Jesus sees all of our works is immediately humbling, because he's not looking to be impressed. It's very easy to impress your pals if you say you did one or two things, and then you take a look at the guy who died for all of us, and you're immediately unimpressive. Jesus is not looking to be impressed. He doesn't need you to impress him. He desires and is pleased when we sacrificially serve him. And so this is the encouragement that Jesus is giving them. I I am able to reward everything you do, everything that is done in secret, everything that nobody else notices, everything that is done right down to the motivation of the heart. I see them and I'm able to reward them. That is Jesus' encouragement. Secondly, one of the other things they were doing very well is that they rejected false teachers And they disciplined false converts. So look at the second half of verse 2. It says uh, that Jesus knows how you cannot bear with those who are evil. So these might have been Christians who were uh, people claiming to be Christians, but still living in their occultic, uh, new age spirituality lifestyle and refusing to burn them. These might be teachers who are coming in, but but, but teaching falsely and teaching an anti-gospel. But they were unwilling, ultimately, what what he means is that this church was unwilling to be a nominal church where sin was not confronted. You know, sometimes we feel that one of the worst things about a church is that it always talks about sin and it can be judgmental. Now, being judgmental and hypocritical is one of the most ugly things that a church can be. But let's not swing too far back and say we want to be so welcoming that we're not going to preach on sin, we're not going to teach about sin, we're not going to confront one another and ourselves with sin because to fail to do that is to, is to miss out on the commendation that Jesus actually gives here to a church. He says you're really good at what we might call church discipline. If somebody is trying to claim to be a Christian and living like the world and not repenting, they are rightfully not called a Christian anymore in your church. That's a good thing. 
Paul had warned them of exactly this thing. And the next one that he mentions, uh, when John says, well, when Jesus says that they have, look at the rest of verse 2, you have tested those who call themselves apostles but are not and found them to be false. Now, here's the big one. We said before that church leadership is so important. One of the, the biggest attacks on any on the first generation of the church was that false apostles were coming through while the true apostles were writing scripture. They were, they were mingling up the stories. They were telling lies about Paul. They were, they were spreading distrust in the apostles so that the apostles' teaching would be ignored and then they can swing in and sow their, their weeds of false doctrine. And Paul had actually warned this very church in Acts chapter 20 about this. When he was uh, leaving them and expecting that he would go and die, he said that, I know after my departure, fierce wolves will come among you and they will not spare the flock. And even from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Well, this church had listened and they'd listened well. They were, they were active in their church discipline. They were intentional about weeding out false teachers and false apostles. They were ungentle and unkind to the false teachers who claimed to be sent from God, and Jesus commends them for it. He says, I love that you are doing that. Don't be gentle with the guys coming in trying to abuse my fold and abuse my wife. He also mentions this in verse 6. If you go down to verse 6, uh, this is one of the things that he picks up at the, towards the end of the letter. He says, and yet this you have, this was after he gave the, the rebuke, which we'll see soon. He says, yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now it's unclear historically what exactly the doctrine of the Nicolaitans was, but we think it was probably something to do with idolatry and sexual immorality. Right? The pastor saying, it's great that you call yourself a Christian, no worries. And you know what? You can keep on going to the strip club and you can keep on going and doing the new age spirituality. There's no harm in having a little bit of everything. That's what it seemed to be, that the, the teaching of the Nicolaitans were. And, and uh, again, Jesus is saying that you hate those teachings, you hate those false teachers, you hate their works, and so do I. Therefore, he commends them for it. And then thirdly, we see him say back in verse 3, he says that they are enduring patiently and bearing up while not growing weary. Look at what he says in verse 3, that I, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. That is simply to say that in both of these categories, maybe we'll say church productivity and church discipline. They're working really hard, they're doing lots of stuff, it's great, and they're really good at church discipline and keeping the fold pretty clear. Those two things, they were doing great, and I'll tell you, when you try and do either one of those things, you start getting opposition. Sometimes from within the church, sometimes from without the church, always from the devil. And so Jesus is saying to this church, you're doing both things well. And then the third thing on top of that is that you're doing them well with endurance. Against all of the things that come and, come and bear down on top of you, you're bearing up in obedience under that weight for my name's sake. Jesus commends them. <clears throat> And therefore, in both of these things, they were continuing despite the cost, and Jesus commends them. Yet, yet in verse 4, Jesus now identifies the church's failure. This hits hard for the Ephesian church. Look at verse 4. He says, But this I have against you, that you abandoned the love you have at first. Now, when it's always a scary thing if Jesus was ever to look at you in the face and say, I have something against you. But we need to remember the gospel promises that if we are in Jesus Christ, 
He has nothing against us in terms of condemnation. He has nothing against us in terms of what should send us to hell or what he, he will send us to hell for. We have no condemnation in Christ Jesus. He won't condemn himself. We're, we're in him. We're a part of him. However, what he means is that he has something against their conduct. He has a rebuke for them. He has an exhortation for them. He wants them to stop doing something. And especially this is speaking corporately as a church, saying you guys as a whole have fallen into something. And it is that you have abandoned the love you have at first. This is a serious failure. This is an abandonment. Everything in us wants to be able to praise Ephesus for how they've sounded so far. Church productivity, church discipline. That sounds great. Surely Jesus can let this one thing slide. But it is very serious because they have abandoned their first love. Now, here's my immediate warning before we go further. If you've been in church for any period of time and you've heard sermons on the letters of Revelation, you've probably been told that this letter is about losing that inward first and initial warm love that you have towards Jesus. That is that this is a, this is a dry church. They're doctrinally sound, but they're doing everything out of a sense of duty and they don't have an, an internal love for Jesus. I, I don't think that's the issue. I think that primarily, not that they were not loving each other or loving Jesus, I think they were doing that pretty well. I think the issue is that they had failed to maintain their influence. They had lacked, they had fallen, they had had no problem with abandoning and giving up on their first love. Now, what is the first thing we hear about in Ephesus? It was their, their almost worldwide, at least nationwide, influence for the gospel. The proclamation of the gospel is what they were known for, and they had drifted away from that. And we know this because, first of all, he says, you've abandoned the love you had at first, and then the solution is, remember from where you have fallen, and repent, and do the works you did at first. Right. So the answer to, you don't have your first love anymore, is not fan the love back into flame, which you'd think it was, it would be. No, the answer to, you've lost your first love, is go and do the works you did at first. And what did the Ephesians do at first? The only thing we hear about them doing for two years straight is publicly proclaiming, zealously evangelizing their entire nation. So when he says that they've lost their first love, he's not particularly meaning. Like, you know, usually at this point in the, in, the, in the sermon, I'll say, you know, you remember when you first married to your wife or you first met your girlfriend and you'd do anything for them and you'd send them all sorts of amazing gifts or then when you first had your kid and now you think they're a brat... We don't think that. Parents don't ever think that. You know, you first had friends and now you're kind of sick of each other and you avoid each other's phone calls. It's, it's like that, you know, when Jesus wants to get back to that first romantic, intimate love, and that's just not the case. Of course, any church that is burning bright for the Lord Jesus in proclamation will also be warm in its burning in intimacy. But the primary thing that Jesus points to is not their feeling, not their, their intimate relationship, but their signs of obedience. They had a lot of internal obedience. They were serving each other and God. They were doing everything right, apparently. They were, they were disciplining and keeping purity, but they were not taking ground for the kingdom. That was their problem. It is as if Jesus is saying, I haven't heard those worshippers of Artemis get, get very upset lately. They're okay with your church being in their background, in their backyard now. They don't mind you anymore because you're not taking away their customers anymore. You're not converting the masses anymore, Ephesus. And that might not be a, a necessarily a rebuke in itself because 
Other churches didn't necessarily have all of that uh, amazing, world-changing fire going on, but they didn't start there. Ephesus had been there, red-hot evangelism for Jesus, and had drifted and did not care. They were okay because they were productive and they were good at discipline. They were a pure church. They were probably reformed. They taught the catechisms. They were really good, but the city didn't care about them. They were irrelevant because their gospel was not striking the idol maker's economy. It's as if Jesus is saying to them, I haven't heard the occultic groups get very upset lately. Did you stop proclaiming to them who the true Christ is? It's as if Jesus is saying, the hall of Tyrannus is empty. Do the lost souls no longer need to hear the gospel anymore? It's as if Jesus is saying, have you forgotten that you're in such a, 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 a strategic location to reach the nations and you're fine with just having really sound teaching each week? It's as if Jesus is saying that they are productive on the inside, they're disciplining for the purity, but they've settled. They do not mind that their outward proclamation has ground to a halt. And there's another reason that we can think that this is really the angle Jesus is going at, and that's because of how he introduced himself to the church. Do you remember when he introduced himself to, Eph to Ephesus, the, the key marker thing that he identified himself with was that I'm among the lampstands. He's saying, I'm among the things that are meant to burn bright and show light out. Hey, Ephesus, have you forgotten that you're one of those? You're not just a library. You're not symbolized by a book. You're symbolized by a pure, strong, brightly shining lampstand in my presence. And then that is also makes up the threat as well. He says, I'll remove your lampstand if you don't repent. That is to say, I'll remove your influence. I'll remove your shining. I'll remove the place from which you shine forth the gospel. We remember this in Jesus' teaching. Remember, um, uh, so first of all, we see it in the rest of Revelation that the lampstand is a symbol of witness. The, the two prophets are symbolized by two lampstands. We see that also in Zechariah. But also in Jesus' uh, uh, parables, he was, he was teaching and preaching, and he said to his uh, disciples that they are the light of the world. Do not hide a candle under the basket. He also said that our faith should be like a city on a hill that shines bright and everybody traveling around can see it. So Jesus has used this theme of the candle in the past, and now he's using it to Ephesus to say that this, to show us that this is the main theme throughout the letter. The church ought to be a city that is on a hill, shining obviously and brightly to all surrounding mountains. Now, of course, there are some cities that are built secretly and they're meant to stay secret, like bunker cities or sanctuary cities, but that's not the church. The church is not afraid of being noticed. The church is not afraid of having influence. Sometimes we can feel a little, little bit bad, like that doesn't feel like a very Christian thing to pray for. God, give us more influence. Didn't we just start out? with me saying we should not want other Christians to see our good works? Yes, but we do want as much platform, as much influence, as big a megaphone and as loud a microphone as we can possibly have into our culture, not so that we get glory, not so that we can give ourselves an empire, but so that with that platform we can proclaim the, the, the magnitude of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The church in the West really needs to recover this. We've given, you know, we've given up our seat at the table, as it were. We, we're happy to be the minority, and we don't want to you know, impose our beliefs on everybody else. Well, of course, that's true to a degree. But also, if we take Jesus' warning, we want to be a loud, proclaiming gospel witness into our city, into our communities, into our family, because only we have the words of life that can save people. So unapologetically, like Paul, we want to get into the heart of the city. 
pump the gospel straight into its veins and watch it proliferate. That's what we ought to desire. And so fifthly, Jesus identifies the church's solution. He says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. So he says, remember, repent, and return. Remember means, you know, recall when you were at your most effective. Some of us need to do this as well. Maybe we've been more effective in the past in our evangelism, our service, our, our preaching Christ, our ability to do, to do missions or something like that. We were, we've been more effective in the past. It's hard to do that as a church plant. We've only been around for two, uh, well, three weeks now, and yet we ought to take the same stop. Each one of us need to think, where are we heading? What did I think my, my part in a church plant would be? I just wanted to be up the back. I just wanted us to have 10 or 15 close friends that wasn't like those stupid big churches or that really active other churches. I just wanted a nice little sanctuary church city, not this church. Let's endeavor to be a, a world-winning, gospel-proclaiming church. So he said to them, think back on when you were at your most effective. Remember from where you've fallen. It's a different day that he's writing in when no longer is it the fact that everybody in Asia knows about the Ephesian church. Some of us, we can't look back. If we look, maybe, maybe we just haven't had a very productive past. Well, what we need, we need to look back on is, is not our own life of productivity, but the productive lives of other people. So you need to pick up a missionary biography. You need to pick up the biography of somebody like Charles Spurgeon and read their life and realize, Lord, this man is not an angel. This is just a human being used by your spirit. Make me, make our church like this person. And then they need to repent. So remember from where you've fallen. Remember the possibility for the salvation of souls and how active you've been in the past. Repent, which simply means accept Jesus' criticism without any caveat. No ifs, buts, or maybes. Jesus said it. He's the one in charge of the churches. I'm going to accept it. Inasmuch as it lands to us, we also ought to accept the criticism and then return. It really is as simple as that. Do the works you did at first. Of course Jesus cares about your heart, but he doesn't say, first of all, fix your heart and then get active. He says, first, get active and trust him, the heart will follow. Having a disobedient heart is not an excuse to also have a disobedient life. It's much better to have an obedient life with a heart that's dragging behind and ask the Lord and pray to the Lord that on the basis of your obedience, your heart will catch up. That's, that's probably 50-60% of the Christian life. We should not be too surprised if that's where we find ourselves. And you see the, the, the warning that Jesus gives. So look at verse 5. He says, repent. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So this church was a city set on a hill. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to come into this influential city and take away from you the opportunity that you've squandered. Use the opportunity of being in Ephesus or you'll lose the opportunity. This is not a promise that Jesus is going to take away individual salvation. This is the fact that he's going to dissolve the church. He's going to get rid of the church and the city and everybody else. Now, maybe that happens through persecution. They all have to run away. Maybe it happens through a big church split that leaves no functional leadership and everybody ends up going to different churches anyway. Whatever it's going to be like, Jesus is threatening to come in. And we see this in Revelation. Jesus, Jesus arriving, and it's not always the end times arrival, but he's coming to judge the church. And if they don't repent, he's going to knock over the, the, the lampstand. He's going to remove the candlestick so that they no longer have that influence in that city. Number seven, we see that Jesus identifies the rewards for the church. Look at, look at verse seven. Verse seven, Jesus says, He who has an ear, 
let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. What he's saying there is those who have ears to hear. He's saying, you all claim to be Christians, but some of you are spiritually alive and can actually hear the Spirit speaking through Jesus. Or the other way around. Like Jesus is speaking, but he says the Spirit is also speaking. This is the reality of the Christian life, that Christians come to the Word of God, the Bible, as it's preached, as it's studied, and through it, under the letters and through the words, we hear the voice of the Spirit. Not something magical, not an audible voice, but the truth of God landing in our hearts, and we get it, and we understand it, we love it, we desire more of it. But those who do not have spiritual life, call themselves Christians but are not actually saved, come to these same words, and it's just water splashing off of a rock really doesn't land on you. You don't really care about all of this gospel influence. Nothing that I've really said tonight is making a lot of sense. You don't really care because it's all confusing anyway. These are the types of people that Jesus would then call repent and believe. If none of this makes sense, if this is irrelevant to you and you really don't care about the gospel, maybe you can't define the gospel, you don't know who Jesus is really, your life doesn't reflect it, to you the call is repent of your sin, give it to Jesus. Because before he was the one who stands among the lampstands, He was the one who came to this world, lived perfectly, and died in the place of sinners so that we can have a restored relationship with God. He died for our sins. He rose up again to give us eternal life, and then he went back up to heaven. And the message is now believe on him, trust him, call on him to be your savior, and you will be saved. And to everybody who has done that, who has believed, one of the promises is that we will all endure through hardships in this life. And one of the, one of the keys that you, to, to, to test, am I enduring? Am I doing what I ought to be doing? Is that for the Ephesian church, and no doubt for anybody that reads this in future generations, including us, we should read this, and if we have the ears to hear, if we are spiritually alive, we should say, how can I correct myself according to Jesus' words? How can I reorient myself according to Jesus' words? And for those people who, who are able to overcome the external persecution, and the external difficulties and the internal temptation towards fatigue and lethargy and laziness, if you are able to overcome those temptations, then John calls you what he calls Jesus in chapter 4, which is that you are an overcomer. You are somebody who, the other way of translating that word, is a conqueror. You are somebody who has like, won at the Olympic Games or who came out of the UFC championships on top and now you have the cool belt. You are an overcomer and a conqueror, because you left behind you those things which would hold you back from obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. So he calls us forwards into, in the Ephesian context, into obedience, into endurance, and especially into proclamation of the gospel like they used to do. He says for those who do that, they will be welcomed back into the paradise of God to eat the tree of eternal life. This is a, this is a picture of the Garden of Eden. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm taking this whole sinful, cursed, lost mess of a world and I'm taking it back to what it was meant to be like. And if you leave your sin behind and join me, you will join me in eternity. You will join me in eternal life where you feast on the food of God from the tree of life in the paradise of God. Therefore, we ought to take up our sword and march back into the stream of obedience. There's a couple of applications before we close. Number one is that we should think of the church that only Jesus 
can ever ultimately close down a church. And no one, not the devil, not a horrible pastor, not the government, no one has this spiritual authority to close down a church and dissipate her if Jesus desires for her to remain. This is why the church thrives in North Korea right now under intense persecution. Why churches, individual, and, and uh, you know, the, the whole lot of them are thriving in places like China, where, where, where even certain churches have thrived under situations like COVID. Like there's nothing that comes up to the church. There's too much of a hurdle that she's going to fail because Jesus wants to get her going, but they're just unable. No, no one is able to close a church except for Jesus. But no, when she becomes disobedient and Jesus decides to close a church, there's nothing that can keep her open. Jesus is the authoritative Lord over the church. And while he will lose no people who he has saved, he will close down certain churches in response to their disobedience. Secondly, we should remember that doctrinal purity is for mission. Doctrinal purity in the church, you know, theological clarity, knowing what the word of God says, that is for the purpose of mission. It is not for its own sake. Doctrinal purity is like a clean engine in a car. You only have it so that everything runs better, more efficiently, and you can benefit more people. But if it becomes for its own sake, then it stops being of use for its original purpose, and the car can just go sit in a museum. Fine to look at, very clean, doesn't take anybody anywhere. Doctrinal purity can be like that in a church. There are churches that will emphasize doctrinal purity above every other standard, and that is their one goal. That's the, that's the mission, so that what we're driving for and everything we do is doctrinal purity, and that church becomes an ugly, inward-turned, unwelcoming, harsh, ugly, disgusting culture for a church. Churches can become like that pretty easily. I want to warn us because I know that we're filled with people that love our theology and, like Ephesus, love being correct as we ought to be. It's easy for a church to, especially church plant stage, to start becoming um, or, or to emphasize on being that to such a degree that it's unwelcoming for newcomers, unwelcoming for people who are not all that theological yet, though we trust they will become. People who are unsaved people and coming in or, or false converts that we want to see converted, they'll come in and find an ugly, sticky, uh, uh, prickly, unwelcoming culture because the first question is, how much of the catechism have you memorized? Who's your favorite theologian? Rather than, do you love Jesus? What's the gospel? I tell you, I, would, I, would, I am always more excited when I see a new convert immediately start evangelizing their friends, family, and people on the street. Infinitely more excited about that and when somebody within the first couple of months of being a Christian starts taking up John Calvin's Institutes. Not because that's a bad thing, but because the Ephesian order would show us, the Ephesian example would show us that Jesus loves it when new converts get about the business of saving more people and influencing the, the, the lost souls around us for the Lord Jesus Christ. Doctrinal purity is for the sake of the mission, not for the sake of itself. So some who do not yet believe in Jesus, the, the necessary step that you need to take is believe on Christ who died for you and devote yourself to glorifying him in your life. And to the rest of us, our job is to now heed what Jesus has said in his word, set about obeying it and putting it into practice. And tonight, before we lay our head on our pillows, we ask the Lord God, show me where I have the seeds or the beginnings of the Ephesian era in my life, lest I also abandon that fiery, passionate, proclaiming, evangelistic first love. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much 
that you sent your son yet again to go down and visit John that day on Patmos and that through him came this amazing book we call Revelation. And we thank you, Lord God, for your providence that you would allow us to gather here and that you would allow us to begin the, the workings of a church play. Lord, we thank you that you <coughs> have allowed us to, to begin opening up your word and, and having it do its work on us. And I do, do pray to that end now, Lord God, that as each of us come and we hear this explained and we go away and think about it even more, and as we, we pray over its implications, would you make us not a, not a hard-hearted people who have decided already what we want church to be like, who we have already decided what, what things we want church to be about, but rather an obedient, tender-hearted people who love to hear your word, even when it rebukes us, and who willingly and open-heartedly bend our will to meet your will and bend and change our life so that we can find obedience. But I do pray, Lord God, that this church would become a kind of church that is, through the generations, a church like the Ephesian church started out as. That people all around know of Jesus because of us, whether they know of us personally and by name at all. We don't need to be remembered, but we, we, de we desire, Lord God, above anything else, that Jesus would be remembered through our witness. We pray, Lord God, for, for this church to grow, not because we desire numbers, but because we desire Jesus to glorify himself through saving people. There are some who are nervous about evangelism, who are quiet about their faith, who don't mind just drifting along quietly as long as they're not committing any of the, the major sins in the Bible. No, Lord, would you make each one of us somebody who is desirous and passionate about seeing other people come to know Jesus as their saviour. Lord God, we, can, we, we uh, commit ourselves to you. We thank you for your grace. And we ask that you would glorify your son, Jesus, for it is in his name that we now pray. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.